Good morning. Good morning. This is a story day. We have a nice soundtrack behind today. Spoken word. Welcome to Innovation Church. Uh, I can't see you, so if you're new, um, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. Hi, Sam. Uh, thank you. Um, welcome to the month of July. We're halfway through this year, which is a little weird, um, and I hope you're enjoying it. And today is Holy Sweltering Batman. Uh, but uh, well, it's nice in here today, which is unusual. So I'm glad you guys are here today. Um, kind of want to give you some uh, in- updates, announcements, instructions. Uh, we have started our summer classes this past week, and we are off of house gathering, have been for a couple weeks. So I hope you haven't been sitting in the street waiting for it to start outside the house that you go to. Um, but we are at Arbor Church, not this week because of the holiday, so don't go there. Um, eat hot dogs and stuff. The following four weeks, all the way into the first week of August, we'll be having our classes. So we kicked off our first ones this past week, and I'll have that audio up either tonight or tomorrow morning. Um, So you guys can catch up on those if you missed, or if you're trying to do both at the same time, um, you're welcome to do that. Um, So those are at Arbor. If you have questions, please talk to me or Greg um, and uh, after service, and we'll we'll make sure that you get the information you need for that. and then, as you know, Matt is on uh, extended rest this month. Um, he is uh, not here today, as you can see. Uh, he's visiting at Refuge Church downtown, Refuge City Church downtown. Um, John and, of course, the other elders, uh, Stephen and uh, Dave, <laughs> Dave Graham, are uh, really good friends of ours. They've been a blessing to us at uh, renovation um, for, for years, um, particularly John, but even Stephen and Dave. Um, they have been a huge blessing to us um, for years. They're a slightly younger church than us, not by much, um, but they uh, they meet downtown in Old North Dayton, and he's uh, worshiping with them today. So if you guys uh, need anything, as he said, it's it's kind of my chance to say this. Um, we're I'm still here, <laughs> still full full time doing the thing. Uh, Greg is obviously uh, ready for you as well. Um, if you have Needs, questions, man, nothing's skipping this month, so just uh, check in with us and we'll take care of you. So it's my privilege to, uh, to preach today. I'm excited to continue the series in, uh, in spiritual disciplines, these, these habits of grace, these things that allow us to understand and live in particularly the grace of God day by day. And so I'm excited to continue with our section here in prayer. And wouldn't you know, preacher leaves for a month and leaves me with a verse of three words. Um, so that's what I had this week. And depending on which translation you have, it's two words. Uh, so I guess it could have been worse if we weren't in ESV church. Um, but we'll be uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 5 today. So if you want to flip there and join with me. And uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together, Father, the privilege that it is to be called the body of Christ and to be able to gather together. Father, I pray that we would not take that lightly, not for the uh, simple fact that there are many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world, our persecuted brothers and sisters, who do not have the luxury, as it were, to even be able to meet together, maybe even to have your word Uh, But, Father, that we wouldn't miss out on the privilege it is simply for the fact that you have called us to your Son. And you have united us with him. And, Father, that is more the privilege than than anything. 
And so, Father, as we study your word today, as we hear your proclaimed word, Father, I pray that we would gather in our hearts with the church around the world and on all time as we look back to some uh, previous preachers and times, as we look at this idea of prayer, know that our voice is uniting with all of them in the body of Christ. And so, Father, help us see how the great grace it is to have your ear. The audacious even sentiment that the God of the universe inclines his ear to this little tiny pinpoint on this little tiny globe. And Father, we are not significant because of anything we have done, but we are significant because you created us and you love us. And so, Father, we find our rest in your Son. And Father, we begin at the throne of grace with your ear. And Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 12 so that I can actually read some. Verse 12, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. So, we are really dealing with just verse 17. Pray without ceasing. And really, this could be a simple sermon of, pray without ceasing. Well, how do I pray? Well, you pray without ceasing. How do I without ceasing? Well, you, you pray. You see, the simple answer to today's text is simply found in the fact that once we understand what prayer is, then we understand that it's something that goes on. And once we understand what it looks like to go on, then we understand what it is to pray. In a sense, it's a circular argument, and it defines itself. Now, typically when we hear this text, I think we hear it at the dinner table Sir, would you mind praying for our food? <laughs> I pray without ceasing. Um, right, that's typically how you hear that. In fact, I think most people don't understand the fact that that's not the whole sentence, right? There's, there's more. It's in the middle of other things to do, right? And so next time someone goes, <laughs> I pray without ceasing, you say, well, I rejoice always. What? Right? Do you give thanks always, sir, while you're praying without ceasing? Right? And so we, we bring it into the text and we understand there's more at stake here. It's not simply, I am always in a spiritual state, right? That's not what we're talking about. And so this, this circular argument, this, 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 this circular definition of itself uh, is really the whole thing. And I, and I don't have a ton more to bring to that picture because I don't, want to, I don't want to dilute it and I don't want to obscure the picture that, yes, church, you are to pray and you're to pray without ceasing. And without ceasing, you are to pray, now, if you look at the past couple of weeks as we've talked about prayer, we'll see that our prayer is 
founded in the fact that it is a relational thing, right? On Father's Day a couple of weeks ago, you started with the idea that we are in a relationship with God. And the fact that we can speak to him in prayer is uh, precipitated by the fact that he spoke first. Now, since God spoke, we can speak in response. And we saw last week, too, that there is more to this than just the relationship, but there's the status of the parties involved, right? And so just to review last week, we, we looked at the idea of the, the fact that this culture is restless. It is just absolutely restless. Anything and everything sets it off in one direction or another. There is no place to find rest. And so Christians, we are to enter his rest, Knowing that rest is the goal of creation, that when we are in glory, we will be at rest. And the status of this relationship that we've been looking at is not just the fact that he's creator, but we sit behind, we stand with a great high priest. Jesus is not just a high priest who fills a role for a time. He's not like me who fills a role for a time. My rule, as it were, as an elder will be cut off by the fact that I will die. But Jesus does not get cut off. He will not die. And so he is a great high priest. Not only does he go on forever in his term, but he is more capable. He is most capable, in fact. And so we can draw near because of our great high priest. And we ended last week at the fact that we're at the throne of grace. I don't know if that registered with you like it did me, but we ended last week with the fact that we are at at, we, we arrive to, we come into the presence of God at the throne of grace. In our counseling class this past week, we talked about the gospel gap that most of us experience. And the fact that the church teaches well the past, we know what we were saved from, and we certainly know what we're saved to, we look forward to the glory, but we don't get how the gospel applies now. And so there's this monster gap in our timeline. We know the then, and we know the future then, but we don't understand what's happening now. And so what are we missing? We're missing the fact that now, not just then in the future, but now we are at the throne of grace. And that should blow your mind. That's not something that we will one day simply appear in front of. That is true. There will be judgment in front of that. But even now, Jesus calls us to draw near to the throne of grace. That is incredible. And so we have this challenge before us that we saw even at the beginning of the sermon last week. That prayer is an important test of whether we are real. Of whether we are real. If we understand truly that we are believers, that we are Christians, then prayer is an important test because the Christian will be sitting at the throne of grace. These challenges are not new, at least in my life. I grew up in a football culture, and the best way to get you psyched up for the game is to just absolutely berate you. Uh, that's what coaches do, right? Like, you guys ready to go? You stink. Let's get out there and show them that they're worse, right? And you're just like, yeah, I'm fired up. I, I was. You know what? Right? And so these challenges that come with sports are like not unusual to me. And so I kind of just blow them off. Like, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do my job. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of business. Right? These are some challenges for us today. All right? 
not just the fact that it's an important test. Now, listen, if you leave today feeling berated, if you leave today feeling guilty and you're a believer, then you're missing the point. If after the two, past two weeks of sermons you leave today feeling guilty, you're missing the point. At Liberty, we had spiritual emphasis week once a semester, which is kind of concerning. Um, but we had spiritual emphasis week where we talked about these type things, and we would leave the week feeling guilty, right? We received our law, these challenges, you don't pray enough. And I think many of you might now feel that challenge of we don't pray enough. And some of these things I'm getting ready to read are going to make you feel we don't pray enough. If you feel guilty, you're missing the point. This is a stream of grace. This is an opportunity to draw near. He has spoken. It has already been paved for you. Go back and listen the past two weeks with the relationship and the status. And then you'll see how today you don't pray enough. And that's okay. We need to be challenged. Let's look at some challenges. Let me psych you up before the game. Many, 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 many hundreds of years ago, John Chrysostom, church father, said this. Listen to this, this character of heart, all right? This perseverance of heart, this, this understanding of the status of being at the throne of grace. Listen to this. I've tried to update the language a little bit. He says, have you suffered any evil? But if God wills, it is no evil to you. And so give thanks to God. And the evil is changed into good. And so you say also, as Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord forever. For tell me, what such great thing have you suffered? Uh, has disease fallen on you? It's nothing strange. Our body is mortal, and it's liable to suffer. Has a desire for, for possessions overtaken you? These things are simply to be acquired and lost again. And they abide here on earth only. They last not in eternity. But is it plots and false accusations of enemies? For it's not we who are injured by this, but they who are the authors of them. For the soul, he says, that sins itself shall also die. Ezekiel 18.4. He says, just as the bee who stings perishes, the one who suffers the evil has not sinned, but he who has done the evil. Can you, can you take illness and say, not surprised. This is a mortal body and it will one day fall all the way apart. Do you want possessions so badly, these things that are on earth only, that when you leave you can't take with you? They will actually fall away as well. And the hardest one, the first one, when someone <laughs> injures you in evil, can you say, it's not evil. If it happened to me, then it's for my good. And this evil thing turns into the goodness of God. That is incredible. That is incredible. And when it comes to our understanding of who we are at the throne of grace and this character that we should have, you look at John Stott. He says, I sometimes wonder if the comparatively slow progress towards world peace and world equity and world evangelization is not due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. John Calvin, encourager he is, says this, for in the first place, he would have us hold God's benefits in such esteem that the recognition of them and meditation upon them will overcome all sorrows. And unquestionably, if we consider what Christ has given to us, there will be no bitterness of grief so intense as may not be alleviated and give way to spiritual joy. For if this joy does not reign in us, the kingdom of God is at the same time banished from us or we from it. 
And very ungrateful is that man to God who does not set so high a value on the righteousness of Christ and the hope of eternal life as to rejoice in the midst of sorrow. That is a high calling. That is a high calling. There should be nothing on this planet that shakes our joy in God. Now, I can say this because I spent a long season of my life working through joy. A significant season of my life. My life was dutiful, and joy was the icing on the cake. If I got it, nice, but I'm at least going to do my job. And that's not the point of the Christian life. There should be nothing that shakes us, nothing that puts us in sorrow, because we think about Ephesians 1. Everything that Christ has conferred to us, given to us, overcomes all sorrows. There's no grief that joy cannot reign supreme in us. challenge when we talk about praying without ceasing is that we have to pray. We have to pray. We're called to this high level. And, and we're so quick in our, in our culture particularly, but as humans, to dismiss the challenges that Scripture poses. To just dismiss them. We take them as hyperbole. We take them as some expected future thing and not something to pursue now. And that's not the theme of Scripture. I'm not saying that you're going to arrive today. That's not my goal. My goal is for us to see the imperative, the work, the habit of grace. That we have to push hard. We are called to a high bar. And because of Christ, we can do it. But it is too easy for us to simply dismiss these things as impossible because we are mortal. And so one of the things that we hear all the time in DNA, as pastors, people say, I don't like reading. I hate reading. I can't read. It's so hard for me to pray. These type things, right? Listen to what John Piper says in response. They prayed for the inclination to meditate on the Bible, for the want to, speaking of the psalmists. He says, if you lack desire, if you lack the desire to, to read the Bibles, if you lack the desire to pray, don't just have a defeated attitude and say, I can't enjoy it because I don't have the desire. That's the way the atheists talk. God is in the business of creating what is not. And so the psalmist prays in Psalm 119.36, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. We admit to God that our hearts incline to the computer or the newspaper. For those of you that are younger, this is in the 1990s, and that's when we had paper that had news on it, and it was given to us. So this is before the Internet. He's talking about our distractions. The computer, the newspaper, the TV, and we plead with him that he reach in and he changed our inclinations so that we love to read and memorize and meditate on the testimonies of God. So few people deal with God at this level. We are psychological fatalists. This is just the way I am. 
The psalmists were not that way, and we should not be that way. They saw their stubborn inclinations, and instead of fatalistically giving up, they pleaded with God to change their inclinations and make them want to meditate on the Bible. That is a high calling. Christian, you are saved by grace and not through works, but it's time to get busy. He has called us to something. He has prepared works for us in advance that we might walk in them. We are to be about the business of bringing the kingdom of God to bear on this planet. And so Christian prayer is the fundamental course of the Christian life. We're going to take our three words, pray without ceasing, and we're going to break them in half. We're going to first talk mostly about prayer. Prayer is the fundamental course of the Christian life. The text says pray without ceasing, or depending on what version you have, it might say pray constantly or pray continually. Basically, pray without ceasing. And when we first read these kinds of things, we go, okay, he's just, prayer is important. That's why he's saying it. I got it. Because to pray without ceasing is psychologically out of reach. It's just impossible for us to even comprehend being able to execute that. And so it's simply, prayer is important, and you should do it often, right? As if without ceasing, yes? Now, it's interesting, though, because... Pray without ceasing, pray constantly, pray continually. It is a specific calling, and we're going to see it again in just a second. But this isn't the kind of prayer is important. Pray often, like, for instance, Islam and the Muslims do. Right? They have to pray specific times in a specific direction every day. This is not that kind of formal, ritualistic, religious prayer. This is an ongoing activity, and, and so it's, it's not... It's not just pray frequently. That would be like they do. Let's try to understand this. Let's look at pray. In the immediate context, you have this always, always, always language, right? Starting in verse 16, rejoice always, pray always, give thanks always in all circumstances. Always, always, always. And so we have to, we have to see what that fits in because it's, as we talked about at the beginning, not just pray without ceasing. Rejoice, thanksgiving, pray without ceasing. And so when we look at this context, we see that there's a lot going on. In fact, this is the end of the letter, and Paul's giving his final directions and instructions. And he says, we ask you, brothers, in summary, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is at least the apostles. This is definitely the elders in the local congregation. And it's interesting, I think, to encourage you over this month where Greg and I are um, doing battle together. I have definitely already felt the target shift more to my back. I imagine he has or will shortly. Um, that is the burden that Matt is resting from. As the primary preacher, he carries a giant target on his back. And I felt it this morning already. Um, I had a fight with a printer, and I never have that fight. I hate printers. They should all die. Um, I'm ready for digital world where you can just, you know, pull it up in your glasses. The, the target's shifting. It's not that. I'm being facetious. But it, it's, it's real. It's a real fight. And so the, this, this encouragement is meant to help them in their battle. And how does he say to do that? Well, there's that respect aspect. That's helpful. Um, esteeming. That's helpful. But look at this action step. Be at peace among yourselves. You know how how much of a blessing that is to leaders in general, let alone pastors, to have their people at peace among each other. That's incredible. 
That is actually a rarity in this world. For you to look at each other in peace. To not be frustrated with each other. To care about each other. To look out for one another's good. To listen to one another. To take seriously when people are admonishing you. Be at peace. That is a beautiful picture of what this life looks like. And listen, you're not going to be able to do the rest of the paragraph if we don't start there. I command no respect in and of myself. I stand only on the words of God. And when I am in counseling, I stand on the words of God. People often don't answer me from them, but I stand on the word of God. And so your respect for me is respect for the word. Your respect for Greg is respect for the word. Same for Matt. And if you're going to do these verses, then you'll unlock the following. Let's unlock the following. We urge you, brothers, here's another action step. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Be at peace among yourselves. Admonish, encourage, help. Be patient. Be patient. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. All of a sudden, John Chrysostom saying, have you suffered any evil? Don't repay it. Have you suffered any evil? Seek to do good. These are the words of Jesus, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, we land on verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Always, always, always. How do we do this? It fits inside the grand Christian life. But this is the fundamental course for us. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, it's not only here. This isn't just a random thing that he says to the Thessalonians. This is the theme of Scripture and even of Paul. In in Ephesians 6.18, it says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In Philippians 4.4-6, we see the exact same progression that we see here in 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, Paul is not one given to to unmerited hyperbole. Hyperbole, for those of you that don't know, is, is, I call it this big of a fish, right? Stretching the truth, making it grander than it is, an unmerited, undeserved, right? Paul's not given to unmerited hyperbole in his discussion. He often speaks to completeness when he's talking about the bigness that we would say is hyperbolic. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, you see these great, big, grand pictures. You see it in Romans 8, these great, big, grand pictures of who? Of God. A completeness, a a majesty to these words. And and when you see hyperbolic language of Paul of, of doing things, it's a decisiveness. Commit yourselves to these. Run the race. Seek holiness, right? It's a decisiveness. And so it's not unmerited. He might be hyperbolic, but it's not unmerited. He means what he says. And that's important for us when we're looking at this text. Pray at all times. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer. Pray without ceasing. He means what he says. Now, a big question I think that we've not necessarily answered the past two weeks is why pray? Why pray? If he's saying pray at all times, if he's saying pray without ceasing, if he's saying this, why though? I don't know that we've answered that why yet. What's interesting is that prayer for Paul is both the introduction and the summary of all his letters. It's something that he takes seriously. You see in the Ephesians passage, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is chapter 6, infamously known as the armor of God. And so having instructed the Ephesians to put on their armor, he now tells them to actually fight by what? The sword? No, that's the previous verse, by prayer. This is the true method to call upon God is the chief exercise of faith and hope. And it's in this way that we obtain from God every blessing. You see, we've talked about the fact that we have a relationship with God. We've talked about the fact that we are in a different status now because of his work. And we've talked about the fact that we have access to him. But why pray? Because we're in a relationship. He's drawn near to us. Why pray? Because it's effective. He's the great high priest and is able to save to the uttermost. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. Why pray? Well, because without it, we will die. We will die. You see, the prayerless man is someone who is apart from God. They are dead in their sins. Why pray? We need him. We need him. Pastor Greg has been taking us through the Psalms as a band. And we spent a good bit of time dwelling on chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 4 for you. This is the beginning of the book of Psalms. This is as you're coming into the temple, as it were. It said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Listen to the picture now. Verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. And the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. The law of the Lord, meditating on the law of the Lord, makes you like a tree planted by streams of water. It makes you fruitful in your ministry to others. Bears fruit in its season. It makes you durable, right? As your leaf remains green in the midst of dry blasts and seasons of drought. And three, it makes you prosperous. And all the work of faith that you, all the works of faith that you do in your life will have enduring significance even to eternity. Nothing that you do in dependence on God will be done in vain, even if it looks like failure here. And you trust God that it lasts. And so look at our text now, all right? Look at our text. This life of urging brothers, admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with all of them, not repaying anyone evil for evil, but always seeking to do good to one another and to everyone. That is a life full of fruit. That is a very fruit-bearing life. And so he's telling us, the same as David, 
to be like trees planted by streams of water that bring forth fruit. Paul wants us to be fruit-bearing trees. And look at all these needy people draining you, the idle or the unruly or the disruptive, depending on what translation you have. They're challenging you. The faint-hearted are leaning on you. The weak are depleting you. But you are called to encourage and to help and be patient and not return evil for evil. In other words, you are called to have spiritual resources that can be durable and fruitful and nourishing when others are unruly and faint-hearted and weak and mean-spirited. Those challenges that I issued to you earlier, that's it. That's it. If we're going to pray, we need to recognize that there's a need. And the reason we pray is because we're in relationship. And the reason that we're in relationship is to be about his business. And so we have to pray. We have to be strong trees. That's what Paul is calling us to here. To do these things in verse 14 and 15. And so how? (laughs) How? Well, the psalmist answers it by meditating on the law day and night, right? We're going to pick that theme up in just a second. But that's what he's calling us to. And so Paul answers the question also, not just the psalmist in chapter 1. But Paul answers it too. How does he do it? In verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And that's the essence for us. Because the answer seems to be that continual prayer and thanksgiving is a key to the rejoicing or the delighting in God and his word that makes a person fruitful and durable and spiritually prosperous in relation to all kinds of people. Because our text says, do good to one another, the brothers, and to everyone lost. To everyone. Can your tree stand that storm? Can your tree stand that drought? Can your tree stand that abuse, that illness, that challenge, that stretching, that cracking? We plant ourselves by the stream of God's grace and His water. And so, prayer is the fundamental course of the Christian life. It's what we're about. It's what we do. The second... Let's talk about the without ceasing. Christians depend on communion with him as a kingdom citizen in his presence. Christians depend on communion with him as a kingdom citizen in his presence. So we are to pray without ceasing. talk about dependence dependence one of my notes in one of the bibles that i have says that this idea of praying without ceasing suggests a mental attitude of prayerfulness or continual personal fellowship with god and a consciousness of being in his presence throughout each day i think it's pretty succinct and, and somewhat helpful We need to recognize that, first of all, this pray without ceasing is not talking about a simple action. It's not talking about an action, necessarily. Now, building up to this, I've I've challenged you. I've shown you the actions that we need to do, right, at the beginning of this passage. 
actions. Pray without ceasing, is that an action? I think it's, it's, it's not just that. In, in God's economy, we are to always be about things. And so to limit it to the scope of the performable action misses the point. For instance, our simple actions alone are not the sin or works that God, or particularly Jesus, is concerned about. It's not simply committing adultery, but it's looking at a woman with lust, the heart motive. So it's not just the action, it's the state of being. A lustful heart. You look at the idea of coveting in the Ten Commandments. It's not simple an action, I want that, but it's a state of dissatisfaction. It's not actually murdering someone, but it's hating them. And so, pray without ceasing cannot simply be, have you prayed 800 times today? Sinner, right? That's not what we're after. Because you will leave today never being able to pray enough. That's not hopeful. That's not what the text is encouraging you to, and that's certainly not very pastoral of me. You cannot accomplish that. That's fine, because that's not what Paul's calling us to. Are there actions of prayer in our life where we stop and we pray? Are, are there even, is there even room for regular uh, dependence and practice of prayer? Much like Daniel, three times a day, Daniel went and prayed. Even when it was illegal, he went and prayed. You see, the spontaneity of Daniel's prayers is not because he's just a spontaneous guy, but because he had a regular discipline of meeting with God. The spontaneity in our culture does not last in and of itself. We are incapable of doing that. And so there's room for the regular action. But that's not the call here. That's not the call here. You see a, a mix of that when we look at, even at the, at the ancients. You see, <laughs> ancient Greece and, and Rome, much more religious than we are in America are. And much better at performing their actual religion. And in a sense, maybe our religion is simply uh, democratic republicanism, our system of government. That might be our world religion, and, that, and that's maybe what we give ourselves to. Because when you look at this, one commentator says this, Christianity is a religion that turns people's thoughts away from themselves and their puny deeds to the great God who has wrought a stupendous salvation for them in Christ. It is of the very essence of the faith that insists on the inability of sinners to bring about their own salvation, either in a sense of the initial act, why, whereby we get salvation, or in a sense of the day-to-day -day living where we live out our Christian life. The putting away of sins in the atonement was by God. The living of the dedicated life of the power of the indwelling spirit is the only way that we can live day-to-day. -day. All along the way, we experience our own insufficiency. And Paul's exhortation to continual prayer fits into this picture. You see, the old world religions, they were dependent on everything for their crops, for their functioning, and so they lived a much more spiritual life than many Americans. It was every day present, the gods in their life, offering sacrifices. Every day they lived it, in a, some would argue, without ceasing sense. So what makes us different? The fact that we depend on God for everything. That we depend on God for everything. And it's easy to talk about the 
past sins that we were saved from and the future glory to which we'll have, but we forget the gospel gap and that we, without ceasing, depend on God day by day, moment by moment, now. We don't live that way. We don't live dependent. We live as independent creatures. Trusting God for the obvious things. I can't do that. I I trust God for that. I can't do that. He'll do that. I trust Him for that. But right now, I'm good. Functionally, we all are abhorred at that idea, but that's the truth. That's what we do. We are not dependent creatures. In every moment of every day, we are seeking to preserve ourselves. It's not the life of the Christian. You don't have to fight for what's yours. You don't have to get for fear of not having enough. You don't have to position yourself for fear of being looked over. The king of the universe has set his eyes on you. He's provided everything you need in Jesus Christ, and he will provide for you moment by moment. You don't have to be first in line. You don't have to get your fill. You don't have to outcompete. You depend on the Father. And so if we're going to live dependent on God, trusting the Spirit for our day-to-day, and continuing prayer is the continuing expression of this dependence. Continuing prayer is the continuing expression of this dependence. And so you see, it's not just actions, it's a state of being. Do you live a dependent life? Do you live a dependent life? This is one of the most helpful things for me at the beginning of the year, reading the book, and particularly on caring for my body, and that I'm not going to overcome this particular sin. I can live in victory, but I will never overcome it all the way until glory. And that's okay, because at least three times a day, I'm not prone to snacks, (laughs) at least three times a day, I have the opportunity to live in dependent grace. Father, I don't need that. I've got you. Father, I can enjoy this because it's a good gift. But it's not you. I live with the opportunity to continually express my dependence on him at least three times a day in this one realm. As many of you have heard, and I think this is the first time I've preached since I've talked about this, he has opened my repentance to many different areas. We're going to talk about this again in a little bit when we put this into practice. He's opened it not just to food, not just to weight, but to finances, to time, to energy and effort. He's opened it to anger. And so every time as I am learning repentance in these things, I'm experiencing opportunities for continued expression of dependence on the God and Father that I call mine. And that is glorifying to him, whether people see it or whether they don't. And so my life increasingly becomes sanctified. I increasingly get opportunities to practice dependence. And that's not the way that our culture goes. It's not the way that my flesh wants to pull. 
It wants to take opportunities as they come to express my dominion, to express my dominance, to express my independence over these things, that I can conquer them, that I'm strong enough, that I can make it happen. And that's the story of my past. But God calls me to a dependent life on him. And so Tim Keller says, everywhere God is, prayer is. And since God is everywhere and infinitely great, prayer must be all-pervasive in our lives. I don't remember if it was Sunday or if it was Wednesday. Teaching is starting to flow together. Um, We talked about the fact that we act out of our identity. I think it was the counseling class. We act out of our identity, right? And Matt talked even on Sunday about the fact that we do things without thinking because we're an autopilot. We do things without thinking because we're simply responding to life. And until God changes our identity, we won't do anything different. And so prayer has to be all pervasive in our lives because we're making decisions all the time. Not big ones, little ones. All the time. And we do it from an identity. And if our identity is not dependence, then we will respond automatically, which is terrifying, automatically from a source of sin. Christian, you have to depend. The second thing is communion. Communion. We all long for relationships. doesn't matter if you're an introvert like me or... And crazy person, those are extroverts. Um, we long for relationship. And, and, and even to its corniest sense, I'm getting ready to, to bring you way back. When I was single, right, I, I had always been in relationship. I was terrified of being single. I felt I had no one to share life with. Things, doesn't matter, funny things, which I think I'm funny. Um, life events, sunsets, whatever, depends on how hopeless romantic you want to go. I had this desire and longing for companionship, right? And that's a natural thing that God gives us. But I was not living in such a way that I found my fulfillment in Him. I wanted communion, and I missed the fact that I could have it with God. And so, when we think about communion in our lives, depend on communion with Him. Prayer without ceasing looks like communion. So it's not just a state of dependence, but that state of dependence gives us communion. Every time we realize that we're not sufficient, every time we realize that we're dependent creatures, puts us in a place where He says, I got you. Puts us in a place where He says, I have all you need. It puts us in a place where we can hear him say, come lay your burdens. If you're weary and heavy laden, come. I'll give you rest. That's communion. That is communion with God. A God who we don't have to persuade. A God that we don't have to to give in order to get. A God that we can't manipulate. You see that ancient religious culture? Prayer was a common function for them. Everyone prayed. Prayed to the gods. And the prayers of the pagans included invocations of the deity and worship and petitions. They offered sacrifices. Prayers were common in their cults, but prayers were not limited to those even. 
They still prayed privately. Pagans still prayed privately as well as public because the gods were the culture. The cities were given to the gods. The presence of the gods occupied a fundamental place in the consciousness of the people. But unlike pagan prayers, which are trying to influence the gods to have a favorable disposition towards their petitions, Christian prayer begins with a confidence in a God who was their father. And his desire was to do them good as his children. This familial relationship was not manipulations. But this familial relationship is the foundation stone of Christian prayer. You're in communion with God. That's so what I want to remind you of last week. We ended with the fact that we are at the throne of grace. We come to him as his children. There's no manipulation. You speak and he hears. Even this morning, I'm, I'm looking over my material and Avery comes out of the bedroom and they always come out with their blankets on them. She comes out, she pulls a chair up next to me, and she just sits and leans on me, and now I can't type, right? She drew near. She just showed up. She wanted to be with her father. We, that's communion. I, I want to convince you I can't. If you don't value that, if you don't treasure that, then you don't know him. When you know him, you will come near He is our Father. That's the foundation stone of Christian prayer. Let's talk kingdom citizen. We jump into Matthew chapter 6 and you have the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, Jesus. Jesus is teaching us how to pray and he says, Our Father. That's the foundation stone for Christian prayer. Now, I would love to spend an entire sermon on this. I have, if there's any passage in Scripture I've neglected, it's the Lord's Prayer. I don't have it memorized. And people will come to me and be like, you, you don't have the Lord's Prayer memorized? And I'll be like, no, I'm not Catholic. Right? Because for me, Catholicism owned this. Like, I thought it was one of their rights. Like, I felt weird doing the Lord's Prayer because it felt fake. Right? It felt rote. It felt like it was simply, well, Catholic. And I, I didn't know the treasure that's there. I neglected it. And I have only recently in the past year or so come to treasure and understand this. He begins, our Father. Jesus says, our Father. That's the foundation stone for Christian prayer. Now, what's interesting in this is if you look at the Lord's Prayer, look at the, look at the way that he refers to people. Is it singular or plural? Every time it's plural. It's not because he's instructing a group. Because he says, when you pray, you go into the quiet place and pray this, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray not just for ourselves. In fact, most of the time we pray for the body. Read it. We pray for the body. 
we recognize that we are part of something bigger than us. In your dependence, you are driven to depend on him in communion with him as father. And you see that you not only are dependent, but you're not alone. We are citizens of a great kingdom. Because the first two things that he prays for is God's name to be made holy and that his kingdom would come and his will would be done here on earth. We have a mission. We have a mission. Christians depend on communion with him as a kingdom citizen. There are a lot of people in our churches. It's the beginning of the month. I might as well go ahead and put the target on my back completely. There are a lot of people in our churches who are going to be shocked one day when they actually understand the fact that you're not in a democracy. You live under a theocracy under the king of the universe. And so this week leading up to July 4th, millions of your brothers and sisters in this body of Christ are not American. They're not. This is a fantastic country. We, we have great freedom. I was just in Canada. We have great freedom here and it is a special place. But it is not your primary citizenship. It's not. It's not. We have far too much hope invested in the retirement of Justice Kennedy this past week than we do in Jesus. And that's not okay. Our hope is not in court decisions. It's not in presidents. It's not in lawmakers or laws. It is in Jesus Christ alone. And we live as kingdom citizens. We are prayerless because we depend on things outside of ourselves that is not Jesus to make the changes in our life. It's not okay. That's not who we are. Our mission is to make Jesus' name holy. That's our mission. That's what we're supposed to be about. And we need to be about the mission that God has given us. And the only way to do that is to live in dependent communion. To live in dependent communion. So how do we be about this mission? Uh, we're in his presence. Joyful trusting in his presence. Joyful trusting in his presence. Christians are always conscious that they depend on God and that they are always surrounded by God's love because he is our Father. And therefore, although they're not able to achieve anything worthwhile in our own strength, they have all that they need. This knowledge will keep them always rejoicing. And why should they be otherwise? It will keep them always in the spirit of prayer. Prayer and rejoicing are closely related. Often believers find that in prayer, the means of removing that which was a barrier to their joy. And prayer is not to be thought of only as offering petitions and set words. Prayer is fellowship with God. Prayer is the realization of the presence of our Father. And though it is quite impossible for us to always be uttering the words of prayer, it is possible and necessary that we should always be living in the spirit of prayer. This is not a without ceasing of actions. This is a without ceasing of the fact that we're in His presence. Christian, do you know what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit? You know what it means to be at the throne of grace, to draw near because of the perfect sacrifice of God to the throne of grace where we drop everything and give it to our God who is great. That's without ceasing. So how do we pray without ceasing? How do we pray without ceasing? We pray. 
is what it means to be at the throne of grace in front of our most holy God. I don't want to leave you with no practical things to do. But if you haven't caught a vision for what it means to pray without ceasing based on what we've already said, this next set is just legalism. I'm going to give you some things to do, some things that I think are helpful, but if you only do this, you're missing it. You're missing it. I want you to treasure and sit at the throne of grace. I want you to know what it is to sit at the feet of the king. To have Jesus, the great high priest, advocate for you. When I I go to pray, so often I say, to myself, my, 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 I'm accused by the, by the accuser. You don't have a right to say what you're saying. Yes, I do, because of him. You can't pray for that. You're not doing it yourself. Yes, I can, because I'm dependent. Know what it is to be freed to speak to the king, because you depend on him, and because he has done the work. So all that, how do you put this in practice? How do you put this in practice? Uh, memorize. You're going to have to memorize some scripture. I'm sorry. <laughs> People don't like that, and it, I understand that it's challenging. It's not challenging if you live in it. It's incredibly hard for me to memorize scripture in a rote sense. I can't do it. I've tried. But I'm not going to give up. <laughs> the answer to not being able to memorize scripture for some of you that can't is to live it. It's not hard when you live it. The biggest one that I've been living in my uh, self-control of anger that I was talking about earlier is the fact that the uh, anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you try to memorize that in a rote sense, you probably can. It's short, but it won't mean anything to you. But to get angry at my kids, to get angry at one of you, to get angry at my wife, to get angry at anything and then realize that not only is it ineffective, but it can't produce the good, is living that scripture. Not only is my anger meaningless, it can't do what I want it to do, but even if it did, it's not producing the righteousness of God. You'd be surprised how my anger just washes away with the double realization that this is dumb. It, it doesn't produce what I want it to, and it just... Live, live the word, and you'll memorize it. One thing that we're going to be doing in our counseling class is looking at the avenues and aspects, the categories of life. It's something that I encouraged my house gathering to this past year, and I, I try to, wherever I'm talking to people about this. Do you know what the scriptures say about blank? Do you know what the, how do you live in a state of dependence? When you encounter finances, the Bible says this about finances. It says this about finances. It says this about finances. I'm living in the word of God. I'm dependent on his instruction. I'm dependent on his goals for my life. And so I live in communion with the word. I'm praying without ceasing. When I encounter traffic, what does God say about anger? does God say about patience? What does God say about his sovereignty? The fact that he put the cars there. I'm living in dependence. I'm living in a state of understanding that he's with me. And I will get there, as Gandalf says, precisely when I mean to, right? When he means to. 
Do you know what the scriptures say about things, about finances, about parenting, about marriage? Do you know three verses that speak about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control? Do you know what the scriptures say about our country? Do you know what the scriptures say about the weak? Do you know what the scriptures say about your siblings? Do you know what the scriptures say about knowledge? Do you know what the scriptures say about mercy? Do you know what the scriptures say about voting? Do you know what the scriptures say about rest? Do you know what the scriptures say about life? And if you don't, that's okay. Start. I'm learning more every month. God is bringing me through new repentance and faith every month. I know what the scriptures say about anger. I know what the scriptures say about self-control. I know what the scriptures say about time. I don't know what this month's thing is going to be. Probably leadership and being alone, except for Greg, but he's not in the office, and it's going to be lonely in the office. I will know what God has to say about communion more. And so I practice the scriptures, and you have to apply them daily. And the only way that you're going to effectively do that without it being legalism is through repentance. Daily repentance and practicing the scriptures. Another thing I want to encourage you in is to journal your journey. Journal your journey. That's kind of what I'm alluding to already, even just this year. I can look at January and I can tell you that that began with with food and weight. I can look at February and tell you that that began with self-control and exercise, particularly even though that started in January. I can tell you that March was a lesson in self-control and time. I can tell you that April was a lesson in self-control and finances. I can tell you that May was a lesson in self-control and anger. I can tell you that June was a lesson in self-control and practicing rest and not working in the wrong ways. Again, I don't know what July is, but that's the journal of my journey. I can look back to 2013 and I can tell you what God was teaching me that year. I can look back to 2015 and I can tell you what God was telling me and journaling my journey with him that year. As I live in the presence of God, he does not leave me as I am. My dependent creaturehood has to shift. He works on me. And so I can see the progression of my life in that. So a third thing, you have to reflect. You have to reflect. You're responding out of an identity. You're responding out of an identity. And so look at this past week. Go to lunch and sit down and write. And look at this past week and say, what? major situations that I encounter and from what identity did I respond in? Then, look at some of the minor things. This morning, why did you do what you did? It made sense to you. I know. Why? How have you experienced his presence this morning? Because if we're not reflecting, then we're just saying, I'm okay responding from who I am. And that does not fit the scriptures. And you will not practice his presence. You will practice your independence. And finally, all of these are built on each other. Recognize your identity. Recognize your identity. You are a kingdom citizen. You have one mission on this planet. Be about it. Are you about it? 
Do you know that you have a Father in heaven who wants you to draw near? Do you know that everything that happens in your life is for your good? God disciplines those that he loves. If you are without discipline, you are not a son. Every good and perfect thing comes from the Father above. Every good and perfect thing, if you have anything good in your life, it's from him. If you have anything evil in your life, it's for your good because he gives these things to you to discipline you that you might be conformed to his son. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his name. If you forget that last part, then you're missing it. And so we can trust him. That's your identity. Your kids are going to do something goofy today. It's for your good. That's not license, all right? Don't just do something goofy because it's funny. All right? I'm talking to the front row here. Respond from your right identity. Live in dependence because otherwise you will not respond appropriately. You know, where am I going with all this? Pray without ceasing and without ceasing. Pray. Why? This is the will of God for you. This is the will of God for you. The biggest question on college campuses, particularly Christian ones, what's the will of God for my life? That. That. He's explicit. There's no, it's not a mystery. I bought a book in college, The Will of God. It was this thick, right? Not in one of my courses. Needed to read it. Didn't know what God's will for me was. Could have read my Bible this thick, right? This is the will of God for you. This is the will of God for you. And so earlier, the Calvin quote, kind of discouraging, right? Because we still experience sorrow. Because we still experience and feel not right. I'm not dismissing that. I'm saying that we can't stay there. The psalmists felt that way. Look, look at the way that they respond to life. Listen to how he completes this thought. Listen to this. As, however, our minds are easily dispirited, right? It doesn't take much to cast down our spirits. Until we give way to impatience, we must observe the remedy that he gives immediately afterwards. For on being cast down and laid low, we are raised up again by prayers. Because we lay upon God what burdened us. And as, however, there are every day, nay, every moment, many things that may disturb our peace and mar our joy, he for this reason bids us pray without ceasing. For this is the will of God, that God has such a disposition towards us in Christ that even in our afflictions we have large occasion of thanksgiving. For what is fitter or more suitable for pacifying us than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. So let us therefore bear in mind that this is a special remedy for correcting our impatience, to turn away our eyes from beholding present evils that torment us, and to direct our views to a consideration of a different nature, how God stands affected towards us in Christ. <laughs> it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Pray without ceasing, Christian. And without ceasing, pray. Be dependent and know your identity in the Father. Let's pray. Father God, you are so, so good to us. You're so 
good to us. And Father, this sermon feels a little easy for me because of my predisposition to seeking goodness. I'm a creature of comfort, and my life is spent searching for goodness. And Father, every time you reveal that you are most good, it is so easy for me to love to be in your presence. Father, I'm so easily distracted by all the good things that you've given. They're from you. But Father, my sight and gaze and worship of them is set on the creation rather than the creator. Father, whatever it may be that pulls us away from you, let us see that it is not sufficient. Father, more so today, let us see that we are not sufficient. Let us be dependent on you. Let us be dependent. Let us see that you have called us near to the throne of grace. We have a great high priest who intercedes for us, who advocates for us. Father, I know that my passionate pleas will not persuade. But Father, I pray that we have made your name great today as we recognize that you're the only one. You're the only one who can deliver. And Father, I pray that our gospel gap of understanding how the gospel affects us today, how it enables us to live dependent today, is maybe a little bit smaller. Father, draw us to yourself that we may pray without ceasing. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.